This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. This episode kicks off season four of the podcast. It features an inspiring conversation with Reed Alloway of Turnisall Farm. Hi, my name is Reed Alloway. I'm an organic CSA farmer and a machine tinkerer at Tournesol Cooperative Farm in Les Cedres, Quebec. I've had a lifelong passion for figuring out how things work and uh, figuring out how to make things better. Reed joined me to talk about his years-long commitment to electrifying various internal combustion-powered machinery around his cooperative farm. There's a lot of useful information in here for those who want to follow Reed's lead, including the successful transition to an electrified cube van that costs the farm five bucks in electricity for every delivery run. After that, you'll hear a BC-based farmer talk about how they felt the effects of climate change on their farm. That's all for now. I'll talk to you again in a while. Reed Alloway, thanks so much for joining me on the Organic BC podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Reed, you have agreed to join us today to talk about your years-long passion for and interest in the conversion of various farm tools and equipment and machinery uh, to be electrified. And I can't wait to talk about that, but I think we better situate this in some context. And so I was hoping you could just start by giving me that 20 or 30 or 40 second summary of Turnisall Farm, uh, its size, its focus, and its kind of structure, if, if you will. Sure. So we're uh, about 45 to 60 minutes west of downtown Montreal, depending on where you're leaving from in Montreal. We're just off the island. Uh, our farm is a workers' cooperative started by myself and four other friends, colleagues. Uh, as we completed our undergrad studies, the opportunity to rent this land came up. And so we planned and debated and figured out what would suit us best and uh, founded this farm as a workers' co-op in 2005. So we've just finished our 17th season. The co-op is now nine members strong, and we're about 20 people uh, on the payroll uh, year in, year out. There's a very substantial seed operation that produces and contracts and sells certified organic seed uh, a lot in Quebec, but we're also gradually expanding to other parts of Canada, uh, still under the Tolnassal brand, and our CSA is the sole outlet for all of the farm's vegetables. We're at 500, 520 members a week for 22 weeks. And we're in zone, oh man, I'm not good with the zone maps, but I think we're 5B. But we're, um, you know, there's snow on the ground today in uh, in late November. And our first frost is sometimes, uh, you know, late September. So yeah, chillier than, uh, than lower mainland BC. But for Eastern Canada, we are in the warmest, most fertile part of, uh, of Quebec. And I think the total area of the farm is something like 15 acres at this point. And of the cropped area, about we try to have about 40, 45% in, uh, out of production in green manures. Thank you, Reed. So let's just start here. Take us back. When did you first become interested in the conversion of equipment and tools and machinery on the farm towards electric? 
I think it was probably even before I started farming. It was sometime in the early 2000s, um, finishing up studies, learning about organic vegetable production, uh, seeing that so much of the the cultivation equipment, specifically specialized cultivating tractors. I'm I'm a mechanically inclined person, and I like puzzles. And I I was blown away when I discovered these uh, these cultivating tractors with belly mount implements, and I thought, what a genius thing. And then I realized that the vast majority of them were 50 and now 70 and getting on 80 years old, and the engines are an absolute disaster. And I thought, what a terrible shame. And around that time, lots of other people were having the same realization. And, uh, and you know, you look at an Alice Chalmers G and an electric golf cart, and their power demands are pretty much the same. So it doesn't take a huge leap of logic to say, well, why don't I steal the parts out of a defunct golf cart and, and put them onto my Alice G and have it stop sucking? Because the biggest problem with the Alice G is the engine, and it's universally the case for every Alice Chalmers G. So, so uh, for anyone who doesn't know, that's a that's an odd little tractor from the 1950s with the the engine behind the operator and a tool carrier kind of right in front of the operator's feet, so that you can see down into the work that you're doing with cultivating tools. There, it's it wasn't just a coincidence that you zeroed in on a cultivating tractor because one one I think one point we'll hit a few times is that one major consideration as we consider electrification are the power demands of of what you're what you want to electrify. Exactly. So power power demands and also run time. Um, if I was running 60 acres of lettuce, uh, I might not have leaned towards electric until quite recently. But uh, with small diversified operations in mind, even if you manage to mechanize most of your weed control, you still only need to run that machine for a couple of hours here and there to get from one side of the farm to the other. And uh, so the, the, the power demands and the, the instantaneous power demand, but also the, the sort of how much energy do you need to be able to store and carry with you, um, those are the, the limiting factors for for electric vehicles. And they were real, it was a really low ceiling uh, up until the advent of affordable lithium batteries. And so electric vehicles pre-2010 was kind of limited to forklifts and scissor lifts and uh, and golf carts and a few other niches where the either the runtime didn't have to be very great or the massive amounts of weight that came with a big lead pack were not an obstacle like a forklift. It's actually an asset to have five tons of ballast in your battery. Right. So is that was is that is that the only major drawback or limitation at the time? Like, were there any other major problems with lead acid other than that weight issue that that you just pointed out? Their lifespan is is relatively short, and so it's it's frustrating as an operator to uh, or as a if you're managing a fleet or fixing machines to to say I'm going to buy a brand new John Deere electric gator utility vehicle and it's going to be great but every and I'm never going to have to put any fuel in it but every five years I'm going to have to dig in for another twelve or fourteen hundred dollars to replace the lead batteries because their lifespan is just that short that if you if you use them day after day and recharge them every night they do their job pretty well but it's a curve and it's kind of like a decay rate um, that they they're always getting bad, getting worse and they're getting worse relatively quickly compared to 
what we would like. And uh, when I started getting into fiddling with electric vehicles, I would always be ending up with crappy lead batteries, and it was infuriating because I could I could never justify spending eight hundred dollars on a battery assembly that was you know as soon as you take it home it's already dying and it's and it's going to be kaput in a few years no matter how you do it it just it's a hard sell right okay and so just dwelling on this period 20 years ago when you got really interested what i think i think i know the answer to this question but what what was your other than being a problem solver and a tinkerer you know the interest was there what what was your major motivation to make this your focus Obviously, the kind of ecological sensitivity that brings a lot of people to uh, organic farming and sustainable agriculture. You know, we we don't get into it because we want to burn diesel and put carbon into the atmosphere. So that the prospect of of taking a piece of equipment that has the potential to be useful and make your life better and make your farm more productive or efficient, and then as well as making it work better for you to uh, eliminate its its greenhouse gas contribution or its fossil fuel intake, that that's very appealing. Um, although these are relatively trivial reductions because, you know, if you have a cultivating tractor and you're only putting two jerry cans of gasoline in it a year, eliminating those two jerry cans is a, definitely a drop in the bucket, but it is still one machine that will never consume any more fossil fuels. Um, that certainly speaks to me as well. Did it matter much to you or that just the the silencing of your motors, you know, just in terms of like user user happiness? Uh, yeah, I guess it's one of the motivations. It's one of the things that that really uh, that draws people's curiosity um, towards the electric uh, electrification and battery electric vehicles is that they are they are more pleasant to use. And I think the thing that we grasp really quickly once we start using them is that they're not just more pleasant it's not so much about them being quieter what we end up really appreciating is that they they work a lot better like they are they're so much more precise and easy to control and all of the power is wherever you want it to be like they're they simply are better drivetrains than than a gas or diesel engine with a clutch and a transmission and no matter how complicated you make the transmission, you're still stuck with an engine that, that you can't ever stop it, and its torque is only delivered in a narrow band, and it's it's a pretty, you know, inelegant solution to we need mobile power. Um, once you've operated an electric vehicle on your farm, whatever the task, you're going to have a hard time going back. Reed, let's get back to taking us through, you know, your history. So maybe you could take us through some of the first conversions you did and do your best to, to, to mention those, you know, those turning points or breakthroughs as far as like the technology you had access to. I think, I think we want to start with your hefty G tractors that you had purchased. Yeah. And I should just give a crucial shout out to the pioneering work of, uh, the hilarious and uh, ingenious Ron Kozla. In upstate New York, he wrote a guide with uh, Sayre Grant in the U.S. Um, to develop and publish the results of converting one or a couple Alice Chalmers Model Gs. And uh, 
as a result of that guide and Kozla's work, the Alice Chalmers G converted to electric is by far the most common electric tractor on earth today. Like you can now order a kit of parts from Nyakamp Tool and a kit of parts from EV America, and you can assemble and redo an Alice G in just a couple days. So it's changed. Change, things have evolved, but that I think was the the crucial watershed moment for the North American do-it-yourselfer uh, farmer. Right. But that's not the question you asked at all. <laughs> no, but you know what? That's that's okay because it sets up the next few minutes of our conversation, which is and and I, and I, I you know let, let me ask you to attempt to just kind of breeze through like just a few examples of what you did through this early to mid period. Uh, like I'd, yeah. love, I'd love you to mention the pallet truck and the utility vehicle and the BCS, at least, if not other other pieces. Yeah, so I started, you know, inspired by the coastal guide and uh, knowing that I gradually want, wanted to start experimenting this, with this myself. I started collecting parts here and there whenever I could. And I bought a, a pallet truck, an electric pallet truck, which is like a, a pallet jigger with a, a drive motor and a hydraulic pump and... In taking it apart, I learned a lot of the basics. Um, they're great little training vehicles. They have all of the bits of an electric vehicle, but all in very small format. And uh, we still use ours tons now. It's got a different battery than when we got it, but it was a, a fantastic purchase in terms of me getting getting cheap training and access to an electric vehicle. And uh, also bought a hefty G, which is kind of like a updated late 70s version of an Alice G, uh, bigger and better in every regard, but still with a crap engine from the late 70s. And uh, so I bought a pair of those, one that was running and one for parts. And then once I had accumulated all the parts, uh, slowly over time without much money, then I, then I finally got our hefty into the shop one winter and um, got it converted. And it's now running nice. It's got a lithium battery pack, an old forklift motor, um, but it is now the backbone of our of our weed control for crops that can be uh, mechanically weeded with a, with a four-wheel tractor. And other machines between the, the pallet truck and the hefty, I took apart our BCS walk-behind rototiller or walk-behind tractor and put a kind of a golf cart sized motor on it and built some lithium battery packs for it. It actually shares batteries with the pallet truck and a planet junior walk behind and a couple other tools where I was able to make kind of like a, you know, we have cordless drills with interchangeable mm -hmm. batteries. I made like a monster version of that in an ammo case that is uh, metal and watertight. And so, it's quite a lot of energy stored in uh, in this kind of lunchbox, this armored lunchbox, and we were able to make four of those using uh, components from Chevy Volt batteries. And those interchangeable packs mean that all of the small tools that, that don't need tons of power, they all have these sort of lunchbox-sized batteries, and you can never run out because there's always another one available. And uh, so that's another alternative to the runtime energy storage issue is to make modular batteries. 
Well, okay. Um, and th- I'm glad that came up, but I, I also want to ask with the BCS, there are many implements that require something like 13 horsepower to run. Can, can your conversion run all of those implements? I'm just trying to like contextualize this for people. Can your conversion on the BCS run all of those implements or are there certain ones that you would still, you know, that would be, you couldn't. Um, I'm pretty sure I kind of overdid it on the the motor. The, the motor that I chose for the BCS, I acquired it at auction. It's appreciably larger than it needs to be, but I'm running it at a relatively low voltage. Um, I could, if I wanted to, I could build a much more powerful BCS, uh, but for our purposes, ours is a 700 series. It had a, it was originally powered by a Honda GX340, which is the nominal 11 horsepower engine, mm-hmm. and the electric variant is just simply superior in every regard. It is so much more pleasant to use. It has more torque. It accelerates faster. It always stops when you want it to. It never crushes you against the wall like a BCS often does when you're fumbling for the clutch. Um, and it does it does everything that it should do better and given that runtime is not an issue there's no there's no comparison um so it it's been an absolute uh like almost unequivocal success in every regard we would never be able to go back to running a gas engine for our bcs it's mostly used inside uh large high tunnel cold unheated greenhouse structures because the the field operations are are primarily organized around four-wheel tractors on our farm. All right. Well, Reed, you mentioned earlier that uh, there's only so much celebrating one can do on some of these smaller pieces of equipment that don't get used a lot in terms of the emission savings. It feels good, but it's not like you're, you're making a major difference. But that was not the case when it comes to, you know, this, the last part of our discussion about different conversions you've done, which is when you all decided to uh, convert a cube van. Uh, for delivery purposes, um, you mentioned you have a you have a large CSA and that involves a lot of uh, delivery, and maybe you can take it from there. Can you can you tell us about the conversion of this cube van and ultimately get to what that meant for some serious emission savings uh, in terms of your farm? Hey everyone, I'm cutting in real quick to let you know about some upcoming Organic BC events to put in your calendar. It's early January of 2023 as I record this, and the big news is that our annual organic conference will be held in November this year, not February. And to tide you over until then, Organic BC has organized a few gatherings so that we don't have to wait so long to see each other. First, the online events. On Thursday, February 2nd, I will be hosting our second annual beer night on a Zoom call starting at 7pm. This will be a purely silly social event that was really fun last year, so I hope you'll join us. On Thursday, February 23rd, Organic BC is hosting an online session on principles of rotational grazing starting at 7 p.m. There are also some regional in-person gatherings coming up in Nelson, Kelowna, on Vancouver Island, and near Quesnel through the month of February. To learn more about all of these events, head to organicbc.org events, where info will be up soon, if not already. All right, back to my conversation with Reed Alloway. All right, well... Reed, you mentioned earlier that uh, there's only so much celebrating one can do on some of these smaller pieces of equipment that don't get used a lot in terms of the emission savings. It feels good, but it's not like you're you're making a major difference. 
But that was not the case when it comes to, you know, this, the last part of our discussion about different conversions you've done, which is when you all decided to uh, convert a cube van uh, for delivery purposes. Um, you mentioned you have, a, you have a large CSA and that involves a lot of uh, delivery. And maybe you can take it from there. Can you, can you tell us about the conversion of this cube van and ultimately get to what that meant for some serious emission savings uh, in terms of your farm's carbon footprint? Yeah, um, and the, the initial part of the context that's important is that we designed our farm from the start to be very low impact, and we chose to kind of settle and start farming really close to a population, a significant pool of population. Um, our farm is really designed around us being in the field farming rather than in a truck delivering, and we spend very little time driving in a year and we also rack up very few kilometers but there's a lot of tonnage that we do have to move over those short distances um, but it meant that as our as our prior delivery vehicle was was aging and rusting out and it was that was a a, a long tall first generation sprinter which was the most fuel efficient vehicle that we could possibly own for our farm scale but it was the biggest greenhouse gas emitter in our farm's entire, you know, operational energy budget. We run three diesel tractors, one seedling greenhouse with an oil furnace for the spring seedling season. But the delivery vehicle, even with our relatively low, I think we do something like less than 10,000 kilometers a year on the on the farm vehicle. Um, but it was still three times as much fuel as the tractors consume in a year. And by this point, we were kind of starting to realizing that that truck was up for replacement. And we were already starting to think of the farm in terms of kind of an energy audit. And and I started digging and digging and digging furiously to try to find an electric option for our next delivery vehicle to be battery electric because I realized that our... Um, our needs are so modest that, you know, the technology to build a truck like we needed has been around since 2010. I was going to be really bummed if we had to do one more gas or diesel truck before being able to move the farm deliveries to fully electric because I could see that our farm was ready for it, but the manufacturers didn't have anything. You know, I couldn't go, I couldn't walk into a Ford dealer three years ago and put money down on an electric transit uh, cutaway and then plan to put a cube body on it because they hadn't even told anyone that they were going to come out with that truck yet. Mm-hmm. And even today, if I, that's the only option I think there is commercially where I could, I could actually go and put money down and possibly have an electric vehicle delivered within 12 or 24 months. But I found this remarkable firm uh, that's about an hour away from us who had uh, designed a bolt-in drivetrain that fits into Ford E and F series trucks, replacing the gas V8 and transmission. But it basically they they built all of their their electronics into a cradle that mimics the size and shape of the V8 engine, and they put the electric motor and drivetrain into the other part of the cradle that mimics the shape of the transmission. So they made this electric drivetrain 
that fits into the void that you create when you pull the gas drivetrain out of a Ford truck. And then they integrated it with all of the existing uh, onboard systems so that your ABS is still functional, your uh, air conditioning gets replumbed around a an electric drive compressor and your cab heat is managed one way or another. And so they, they've got this brilliant pack conversion package. And even better, they say, bring us a truck that's a couple years old and we'll pull the gas engine out of it and give it back to you. And I was just blown away. I was so excited. I put together, I, I read up about the company and I talked to a couple people there and I was like, they are not going to want to do this for us because we're just a one truck option. And to my great enjoyment and surprise, uh, Andy, the principal at the time said, how very refreshing. I'm so happy to not be talking to another accountant or fleet manager. Yes, we will do this for you. (laughs) So as of this spring, every CSA basket from our farm this year was delivered without a drop of fossil fuel being burned. And uh, we did our whole season with our, our new used electric truck. And I just love that it, it wasn't even a brand new vehicle. Like the, the truck was used and when they gave it, when I picked it up from them, it had a, a V8 in the, and transmission in the back. And I brought that stuff home and sold it on Kijiji. And uh, it's been running as a battery only zero emissions electric vehicle since, and it's been fascinating. Okay. Well, I think as much as I want to talk about it, I just think I want to mention and then move on from the fact that you, you, you actually crowdfunded some or all of this. Can you confirm that you, you did crowdfunding with yeah, your customers? So exactly. We ran quite a successful and, and fun crowdfunding campaign to get, uh, to get a little bit of kind of to bridge the gap between what this project was going to cost us even after government subsidies, which which are quite generous for this kind of thing in Quebec. Um, but we were still going to end up with a, with a bill that was uh, appreciably higher than if we had chosen the next best alternative. Um, and so we, we ran a, a fun crowdfunding campaign, got a lot of uptake from our CSA members. And to my immense joy and surprise, we also got a bunch of donations from other farming friends who were like, yeah, man, this is so cool. I wish we were all there, but at least you are. So go get them. Here's 500 bucks. And we're like, dude, you don't have 500 bucks to give us. Yes, I do. Take it. (laughs) And so that was very touching. And, uh, and also some CSA members who were just so supportive and thrilled. And uh, yeah, it was really, it was really great financially but also uh emotionally on i think on all levels so that was that was a lot of fun it's a lot of work running a successful crowdfunding campaign but if you have something like this and there's a benefit um social and fiscal to it then definitely go for it right on okay and real quick just to give people a sense of what this truck can do it's it's got roughly a three thousand kilogram uh, payload correct yep yeah it's a 16 foot box on a Ford E450 chassis. So you can put 3,000 kilos in the box and it's not even overweight. It's got space for six or eight pallets, depending on how much, how ambitious you are. So it's, it's a big truck. It's much bigger than our previous truck, but, uh, and it's got more than enough power. The battery, the, the motor can deliver something like 160 kilowatts instantaneous. 
the battery pack is 86 kilowatt hours. That gives us about uh, 120 to 170 kilometers of range, depending on how fast you drive and how cold it is. Right. Okay. And are you comfortable sharing the cost of the conversion? I don't think I should for the sake of Ecotune, but I can say that um, the the vehicles that we're going to put that, that they ask you to put these in are cheap as anything. Like, I think we only paid 15 grand for the truck, you know, a functional truck, but a, an E450 Cube is not a hard vehicle to put your hands on. Mm-hmm. It's an expensive vehicle to operate because of fuel. I think if we, if you put, if you filled it up at two bucks a liter, close to $400 of fuel to uh, put fuel in this truck. So it was a real blessing to pull the, the noise-making V8 uh, out of it. And it's, uh, But the, the governmental support for, for this project in Quebec was half the cost of the conversion work was refunded. And so that was really meaningful. And then we managed to raise $23,000, I think, in the crowdfunding campaign and with that, we ended up basically spending the same amount of money as it would have cost us to buy a, a relatively recent Ford Transit Cube with a 16-foot box. Right. Um, I don't think we've touched on this. Is your is this this is a this is a fridge unit, right? Like your your the 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 motor is also um, generating power for uh, refrigeration. Nope. No, the oh, box okay. isn't even insulated. But uh, our delivery routes are really short like we load up at 2 p.m and then leave the farm at three and at four we're unloading in a parking lot right and so the vegetables don't even have time to cool down we've never we've never needed refrigeration um because we've just got such short delivery routes makes sense okay and then uh so just to give people a sense like for your route, you estimate that the cost of the electricity to, to for one one drive of the route is about five bucks versus say eighty bucks in fuel. That's about right. It's not something like every time I tried to pencil out the numbers for like, does this conversion make financial sense? Are we going to save money on it? It doesn't really, but that's because we don't drive enough um, annually to uh, to make it to make it break even, but that's because we designed our farm around farming rather than around driving. And we don't want to drive more just in order to help our truck investment to, to break even. I think if the, uh, if the drivetrain outlasts two trucks and we can migrate it repeatedly to new, uh, donor bodies, um, I think after the second truck, we end up coming out ahead, uh, on, fuel and maintenance and uh, and vehicle purchase price because every time we go to buy a new you know cadaver a four or five year old Ford E450 those are cheap and it'll be a certain amount of shop hours at Ecotune at the conversion shop to migrate the drivetrain and the batteries and there may be some updates and upgrades and repairs to do at that time but the the electric motor and the batteries and the rest of the drivetrain ought to easily outlast a couple Ford trucks here in the land of road salt. Okay, so a couple quick follow-up questions about this truck. One is, 
can we just imagine a slightly longer root read? Um, like I'm just thinking about farmers considering this who don't have as efficient a delivery route. So can we imagine a round trip of 300 kilometers? Um, what does that, what would be required as far as a recharge with this truck? Like, and, and how much time is, is the farmer sitting in for a coffee to let the truck charge up if, if they need to do that? Yeah, on a, a 300 kilometer round trip with this particular vehicle would probably be pushing it and it would be it would be hard on the truck to do that regularly because whenever you charge it hard and fast at a fast charger uh, it's putting a lot of energy into the batteries really quickly and it's great to be able to do that but it's not something you should you know program into your daily routine or your weekly routine because it'll shorten the life expectancy of the batteries this is one of the things that people had to deal with with the nissan leaf um but i'm getting off topic so the, the point is you can you can charge it at 50 kilowatts at a fast charger, and in the space of 45 or 50 minutes, it'll get the energy back to get home, because once you're home, you can just park it, and it can spend the whole night recharging at 7 kilowatts rather than the 50 kilowatts at a fast charger on the right. road. Right, okay. Uh, the other, the the other, the last question is, is, I don't know, it's kind of a funny one. I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned that you you've been really thoughtful about your design for distribution to limit your, your impact on the environment. You mentioned yeah. that a lot of your customers come and pick up. Once you had this van, was there any discussion among you and your colleagues about the emissions that they're, they're expending to get to your farm? Like, is there any use case or argument for trying to create one or two more distribution points to stop them from driving as far to your farm? Uh, sorry, funny I don't question. Think, but. Yeah. I, I don't think that we can manage their footprints. I think we can, if with significant efforts as small business owners, we can manage our own consumption and our own ecological imprint. There, there are too many uh, potential branching scenarios that are beyond my control and that, you know, we have so many things in farming that are beyond our control. Mm -hmm. I kind of got to draw the line somewhere. All, all we can do is, lead by example and uh, and get people to think about it and hopefully they'll make better decisions, but I don't think I can make good decisions for people. Okay, Reed. so I'd like to broaden out the discussion now just to talk about a lot of the considerations around this stuff. I think I wanna start with this question. Can we now talk about like in the present, not 20 years ago when you were ma mainly faced with lead acid batteries, but in the present, what are, can we talk about some of the major limitations or drawbacks or hurdles around electrification around the farm? Maybe I'll ask you to start with the fact that, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're running big tractors with huge running equipment with high horsepower needs, you're probably not considering electric electrification, correct? Yeah. And certainly for do it yourself conversions, um, it makes sense to be working with relatively more affordable options whenever you can so you're probably recycling batteries i've primarily used batteries from uh scrapyard batteries from chevrolet volt automobiles they're really nice to work with and they're spectacularly tough batteries and those cars have been on the road for a long time so it's it's easy enough to acquire them um, and then for motors and controllers the biggest stuff that's really affordable be through the used world is uh, forklift equipment from forklift drivetrains, and uh, and so that kind of puts a ceiling somewhere in the neighborhood of I don't know maybe a 
maybe a six or seven ton um, forklift that was electric. That's a big motor. You know, that's almost a road-going car, but it's not really a 70-horsepower tractor kind of scale. And it's a little bit dated in tech. And, and then if you start looking at, like, new motors at that scale, suddenly your kind of do-it-yourself project budget is looking like, you know, fifty and $60,000 plus a lot of engineering work. And if you get it wrong, you're going to feel really stupid. Mm-hmm. So um, the low-hanging fruit, and this is kind of why it's fun to be a small, diversified farmer, is that we have tons and tons of power needs that are in the sort of zero to 10 kilowatts. So that's like the, a kilowatt is uh, a thousand watts and a horsepower is 740 watts or something. So, so every kilowatt is a little bit more than a horsepower. Uh, A five kilowatt electric drivetrain is probably an eight or 10 horsepower gasoline equivalent just because it's it performs better. Okay, and you said so, you said tons of opportunities to play around in the in the zero to ten kilowatt range. Yeah, okay. yeah, because even a, even a, a cultivating tractor there at the sort of top end of that, and then and then beneath that you have uh, walk behind tractors, weeding tools, uh, you know, carts or load carriers, utility vehicles. Uh, I made a really cool kind of like an the world's most robust low-speed cordless drill out of a steering motor from a forklift, and we use it to set those kind of uh, twist-in ground anchors. And you can kind of make it out of recycled bits and parts. Um, electric wheelchairs are a great source of, uh, of parts scavenge. They have really nice little drive units. And uh, so... Yeah, where were we? Where am I supposed to be going we with this be, question? We want to be talking about limitations, <laughs> limitations and hurdles, I guess. Right. So I was starting with the the low hanging fruit is all this small stuff, and then and then the limitations uh, you get into. On the one hand, they become cost limitations if you want more instantaneous power output, or if you want more energy storage than the motors and drive systems that you have to start shopping for become a lot more expensive and the batteries and the battery management stuff that you need to be shopping for, the prices go up really fast. And also so does the sort of engineering overhead. You have to you have to really like the puzzles and really have a lot of patience for reading obtuse engineering manuals if you want to start converting, you know, fifty horsepower tractors. But at this point, the, the obstacles to air power and longer runtime are primarily in terms of how much are you prepared to spend on it and how much R&D can you put in to the development um, and then how many would you have to sell for that to all pay off. Right. And the, the, the economics are going to be in constant flux for the next, you know, Generate a couple generations as fossil fuels gradually come up to costing something like their real ecological cost. So, a related question I have been waiting to ask you is: like, it's very clear that in the early years of your journey, there was a lot of salvaging and uh, scrounging and repurposing of like electric motors, you know, repurposing them to your needs. Are we still very much? 
using that approach or, or is that slowly being replaced by like fully manufactured solutions for farmers who want to convert their equipment? Yeah, I think I'm definitely among a bunch of early tinkerers um, for whom the, the, the challenge of it was part of the appeal. Um, in order for it to become widespread and make a meaningful difference to farmers in general, we need, uh, you know, factory-built solutions. And I think that there will be some really good offerings in the next few years from small players and from big players, and that gradually these things will become more accessible so that, you know, God willing, the Alice G will not be the most common electric tractor in North America <laughs> five years from now, because that would be pretty, pretty pathetic. Like it reflects badly enough on us that Ford, GM, and Chrysler didn't get their butts in gear until what, last year? Like, <laughs> It's really been kind of a, a pathetic slog for for everyone who's been watching the the real world unfold to see how slow progress has been. But I think it's going to accelerate dramatically from this point on. And and I have you know personally for our farm, there's one of our remaining diesel tractors that I want to convert just because I think it would be a fun project and I have half the parts for it. But there's another one that I just, I don't want to convert it. I want someone to offer to sell me a brand new electric tractor. And <laughs> yeah. I think we should, like, I want to be able to buy one rather than always having to build every damn thing from scratch. It's, you know, well, and it's for, about for widespread time. adoption, that's going to be, you've kind of, I'm just, I'm just re reiterating what you just said, but for people like me who are intimidated by conversion projects, that's, it's just, yeah, for widespread adoption, it just seems like we need, not, not, not complete. I think it, seem, it seems really clear from talking to you that there's always going to be opportunities and a role for DIY projects, especially on smaller equipment. But, but yeah, it just seems like we, we really need some of these larger focused companies to, to start making this accessible for, for like way more of the population. Yeah, and I think that there are some really interesting niches where, small players are going to be very successful. And I'm, I'm working with a friend on a not very secret project in that vein. But uh, I think it's there are a couple things like uh, updated conversion kits so that all of the old tractors that people have farms that are built around them um, can, can get into that more easily. Um, and I think there will probably be places like a, like a modern four-wheeled tool carrier tractor um, that it's probably not going to be something John Deere cares about because they're too deeply invested in chemical agriculture and our end of the spectrum is still too small a market mm -hmm. to be of value for them to, to tool up uh, and build a machine for it. But um, we're already seeing some offerings in Europe that look really promising and I think there will be to come and some of them in, in Canada and the U.S. in the years to come. So it's going to be an exciting and fun time, and I will certainly not be spending any more money on diesel or gasoline-powered anything because I'm just too curious to see what's going to be available next from the electric world. And I know that no matter what it, what it is, like whether it's a lawnmower or a tractor or a chainsaw or a leaf blower, regardless of the tool, the electric version is going to be better. 
and so I'm not I'm not buying any more anything. I sold the farm's last Honda engine on Kijiji last year, and I don't think there will be any more. We're just going to gradually get rid of all the rest of them. And it's going to be slow, but but I think there's no reason for our farm to have any gas-powered anything about in the you know five ten years from now. Okay, and and as far as having a farm with no gas-powered anything, like is do we do, does a farmer in a specific location at this point need to be thinking about where their like how their electricity is being generated? Like, is there you know, is it always a slam dunk to electrify or does one have to think about the source of that electricity? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, well, I think it depends on your motivation. If your motivation is at all ecological, then the, the makeup of your grid power uh, should definitely be part of your consideration. And it's been interesting talking to farmers from France who, uh, who we deal with on all these cool DIY design projects and uh, and like farmer built tools that electric conversion it's hard to get traction with organic farmers over there because when you say electricity in France you mean nuclear and most organic farmers aren't big supporters of nuclear power and so telling them that they can convert a tractor to electric they're like yeah but why bother there's other stuff that I could do that would have a bigger impact um, so that's been interesting. And in the States, in the U.S., um, you know, not to paint the entire United States with one brush, but I find that the appetite for moving away from gas and diesel is a little less strong than it is in Canada. And I have the luxury of being in Quebec where, you know, if Hydro-Quebec goes down, it's because Quebec society has and capitalism have completely collapsed. Like it is, it is the biggest, most stable grid in North America, and it is a hundred percent renewables. So I kind of have like this lazy solution, which is like I just don't have to worry about it. But on the on the flip side, I, you know, if I were in Ontario and uh, like Tony Neal at Wheelbarrow Farm, who adopted an electric tractor, um, and he and I did. Uh, conference together they started by putting up a solar array on the farm because they didn't want to be you know pulling from a part coal part nuclear grid in ontario and because the cost of electricity is so much higher so that that also plays into it i've i've kind of been able to um allow myself to not tackle that end of the puzzle by virtue of living in quebec where electricity is immensely cheaper than any other form of energy and it's relatively well managed by a massive state company that that can't really fail unless we're all starving to death so i'm i've kind of taken the easy way out but only because i have multitudes of other challenges if i lived somewhere else and i kind of on the one hand i i almost uh almost wish that I didn't have the easy way out because it would be fun to learn about solar and, and I'm getting good at building battery systems, but at the same time, you know, I have enough to keep me. Well, busy. sure. Opportunity costs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It just means you can focus yeah. more on the conversions. Okay. Yeah, uh, another, exactly. another, another topic we've got to cover as people listen to you and get inspired, um, are safety considerations. If someone's engaging in these, uh, DIY projects. Yeah, definitely, uh, worth, 
worth considering, worth talking about, and being being honest about. Like the one of the amazing things about lithium batteries is how much energy they can store in terms of energy density, but also how fast they can deliver it if you ask for it. And so if you if you drop a wrench on the positive and negative contacts of a lithium battery, I, you better hope that wasn't your favorite wrench because it'll it'll be red hot and then maybe maybe gone. And um, in the process of fiddling with battery packs, you will inevitably have uh, at least one scary moment in your life. But uh, if as long as you are building the the DIY approach tends to be to work with battery packs where the voltage, it won't uh, induce, I think there's a certain voltage where it induces cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. or something. So there are all sorts of reasons to to take the safety considerations seriously and to work with um, someone who knows what they're doing during the early phases. I was lucky enough to have a a young, uh, passionate engineer who was not too terribly by the book, and he helped me to kind of cut my teeth learning about lithium batteries, and he would answer questions for me uh, all hours of the day for for a couple years. And now I'm trying to return that favor to others, and uh, and definitely, yeah, if it's not, if you don't have any background dealing with electrical stuff, um, there are loads of resources for getting basic training, and then and then taking it seriously and working with gloves and following proper safety considerations and like just just it's all about learning but at the same time it's not like we can pretend that the explosive poisonous liquid fuels that we're accustomed to putting in our cars and putting in our tractors they're they're not exactly without danger we're just accustomed to those dangers all right so I would love, I don't think I'm in a, I don't think we want to spend too long on this. Like, like, but, but I did want to ask you, can you, can you, could you look, you, you know, you don't necessarily, you don't know every farm, but could you talk about like an ideal first project for a, for a small diversified vegetable operation and perhaps an ideal first project for like a large, a large scale farm? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about large scale, but I can start with what I know. Mm-hmm. And I would say that one of the things that I didn't manage to touch on that uh, we have in our fleet here is a couple of uh, electric utility vehicles that we picked up used about five years apart. And the first one that we got, it was a Taylor Dunn brand. And uh, I bought it after discovering that these funny little machines existed, they're kind of like industrial golf carts. And uh, every once in a while you can find one pretty cheap with crappy lead batteries and sometimes uh, solid rubber tires. And usually they need a little bit of love and they might need rewiring. And beyond that, they're pretty great farm vehicles. You might need to get new uh, wheels and tires to put get pneumatic tires. If your farm isn't too hilly and you don't need four-wheel drive, um, these things that are, they, they're called burden carriers in industry, and they're two seats at the front and then a, a flatbed behind, and they're almost always rear axle drive where the, the motor is basically mounted right on the differential and just 
drives the rear diff and thus the rear wheels. But they're spectacularly simple. Um, they're fantastic machines to learn on. I've seen them sell for as little as $500 or as much as $5,000. Um, and they're a kind of like fancy modern equivalents. Like there's a company called Cargo with a K here in Quebec that makes really nice modern ones with aluminum bodies and stuff. But but the old ones from Taylor Dunn and Motrek and uh, Cushman sold them as Titans. Anyway, they're, these, these industrial burden carriers are fantastic kind of runabout utility vehicles for a farm and uh and they're a great machine to learn on because you can pick one up relatively cheap almost certainly there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it because they're so simple and even if the motor was damaged the motors are easy to rebuild and everything about them is pretty accessible and they lend themselves quite well to a small lithium battery pack kind of project or you can buy a pre-made pack uh, from various suppliers. And then you have this fantastic utility vehicle that all you ever have to do is plug it in and they pretty much never break down because they only have like 10 moving parts. And uh, ours are like, I think the bed ratings, you're supposed to be able to put 3,000 pounds on the bed and you can pull a 10,000 pound trailer with them. So they're like, they're pretty robust little suckers. And we almost retired one of our tractors after we got one because we were always driving. You know, you find you're often just driving around hauling a little bit of stuff or harvesting and picking up, you know, 20, 30 bins here and 20, 30 bins there. And all of those stop and go tasks are much better entrusted to an electric vehicle than a diesel tractor that doesn't like start stop. That's a, that's, a, that's a fantastic example that would apply to a small-scale operation or a large-scale one, and, and I love it. So thanks for that, Reed. Um, yeah, so those, those are loads of fun. And otherwise, I would say um, converting a tractor either with a, with a kit that might be available now or may become available in the future um, and trying to, find, uh, you know, trying to find students at a local uh, technical college who are keen on this kind of thing and want to work with you and they want to learn and they'll teach you in the process. There are lots of neat opportunities for partnerships in that kind of vein that I think would be good for everyone involved. So I'm also trying to figure out ways to promote that kind of uh, back and forth between the, the youth who are, you know, even going into ag mechanics programs uh, and who realize that they want to learn about, they want to learn about electrical, electric agricultural equipment and it's not really happening yet so they're they're pushing for it and their profs are reacting and uh it's gonna it's gonna change fast reed how is all of this your whole journey of the last 20 years with electrification how's it changed your perspective on energy consumption around the farm more generally yeah it's really fascinating especially driving um the on on the road the truck the delivery vehicle um you're very conscious of the instantaneous and the kind of remaining stored energy um, on the one hand because that that truck actually consumes a massive amount of energy just to move it around even when it's empty it's a big heavy and it, there's a lot of wind resistance so you're it really brings our energy consumption to the forefront of your mind a lot more often and uh, and 
in the process of thinking about it more often, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that we've been insanely wasteful in almost everything we do and that we're just so out of touch with like, you know, if you equated it to how many trees you would have to just light on fire to drive to the grocery store to pick up the quart of milk, you probably wouldn't burn down three trees to go to the grocery store for a quart of milk. But, and I'm just inventing numbers. It's like that we need something a little bit more visceral um, to help us to grasp the fact that energy isn't free. And every time we transform energy from liquid fuel or other other sources into, you know, entropy and CO2, we ought to be we ought to be sure that it's really an appropriate use of it, and that we're not just burning it because we and our parents and our grandparents have just been in the habit of burning it like crazy without a second thought for generations. Because look where that got us. One thing I wanted to ask you is is whether you think the somewhat unique structure of Turnisall Farm being a very successful cooperative uh, that that was founded by some really bright people and a group of friends did it play a role in in all of this like did, did do you owe any credit I mean, clearly you deserve most of the credit for being a very enthusiastic and it sounds like a brilliant person but but what role did Turnisall Farm as as this kind of unique awesome cooperative play in in getting you to the point getting the electrification on your farm to the point that it's at. Yeah, really, uh, my colleagues all deserve great uh, portions of the credit. Our farm has been so good for all of us in terms of allowing us to um, try different things, learn from each other, and figure out what we like without having to shoulder all of the multitudinous burdens that a small farm inherently generates. And anyone who's who's keen on something, we can make space for it a little bit. And uh, and it's a it's been a glorious uh, experience in that regard, where we've been able, as a, a larger group, to accomplish dramatically more than we could have as as individuals. And uh, I'm very very appreciative for the the opportunity. I think we're we're getting pretty close to being finished, Reed. I'm wondering if we haven't. I mean, we have to do, of course, I, I have to ask you about some um, suggestions for resources to point listeners towards. I, I have a feeling that list is exhaustive. So maybe you could just highlight a few places for people to go. Uh, and maybe you already have a list of resources on your own website or something like that. I don't particularly. There isn't a great, um, the, there isn't a fantastic centralized source of information for, like, aimed at farmers. There's lots of great information about DIY electrical stuff. A lot of it is more at the uh, e-bike and uh, e-bike scale and then automobiles, do-it-yourself car conversions. In between the two, there's not tons, but everything is applicable. And the absence of the kind of farmer-oriented platform um, 
was part of what encouraged me, even though I'm not thrilled with the medium, but there's a Facebook group that this guy Ryan encouraged me to start last year and uh, specifically with a, a farming focus. And so there's a Facebook group called DIY Electric Farmer. And uh, although Facebook groups have their flaws and for people who don't like to use Facebook, I fully understand and I'm sorry that that's where it ended up on some days, but uh, it was the easiest way to get a a conversation and uh, information sharing network up and running with minimal effort. And the uptake's been really strong. So it's been uh, more successful than I expected it to be. And uh, so I try to put energies there whenever a question comes up. I try to chime in if I have anything useful to say and help to manage that group uh, as an active participant. And then there are other places. There's a a really big forum called DIYElectricCar.net where I've gotten lots of really good... um, There are a lot of, like, retired and hobbyists. There are a lot of electrical engineers on there who can completely get me out of my depth right away. But whenever I have something complicated, I can count on um, really good expertise there. There's a huge forum called Endless Sphere uh, that I think is a .org. And uh, Endless Sphere is massive, and it's been up for years and years and years. So, But the quality is more kind of all over the map, um, as is the nature. Um, Nothing else comes to mind presently. What about just real quick? I I know you have you have YouTube videos. What? Oh yeah, uh, I try to I try to shoot YouTube videos, but I really don't take it very seriously, and so my the <laughs> production values, as you might call them, overly generously, are pretty low. Uh, others do a, a better job at it. Um, there's no YouTuber in particular that I can recommend, and. Sometimes there's also a fair bit of pretty bad content about electric motors and batteries, and uh, I think I would take take YouTube as the one of the less good forums. Um, but I do try to shoot videos to put something useful up there. And when I do a conversion project, I do try to shoot a few videos during or before and after to to help to share it specifically for the farming audience of folks who might want to tackle such a project. Reed Alloway, this has just been so, uh, here's an appropriate word for this conversation, illuminating. Uh, <laughs> I'm so grateful that you made this time uh, to share this body of knowledge and 20 years of, of, of experience and perspective with all of us. Thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure, Jordan. I'm always excited to share these uh these ideas with people and I'm always keen to talk to other farmers who have pursued or want to pursue projects like this so folks can find me online and send me questions or photos of cool things that they've built always curious One thing a lot of farmers are feeling lately is stress about extreme weather events that have become increasingly common the last number of years. For this season of the podcast, I called up some of my colleagues around the province to talk about how extreme weather has affected their farm 
and how they are attempting to adapt to what's starting to feel something like a new normal. For this episode, I spoke with Morris Holmes about his farm in Coston. Hello, my name is Morris Holmes, and I am owner-operator of Farmer's Daughter Organics in Coston, BC, and we focus on certified organic garlic. What weather-related stress are you most concerned will affect you in the future, and can you briefly explain why you're concerned? Our biggest concern uh, weather-wise would be drought. We are a, a desertish kind of climate. However, um, we have been experiencing uh, a lot less water during the growing season. And of course, we're on a, on a well, as most of the farmers are. So we're concerned about um, the aquifer and overall water management and changing drought conditions. Can you briefly describe a weather-related stress you and your farm experienced in the last few years? In the last few years, we've had uh, we had what was called a heat dome where we reached in excess of 43 degrees Celsius on the farm. We were very concerned uh, that was pre-harvest. We were very concerned how that was going to impact our crop at the time, uh, primarily because we also lost a lot of water. It did affect us in as much as the product, we felt the yield was marginally down. We didn't really know what to expect, but we, but we do have a concern that that will be the norm going forward. How have you adapted or how do you plan to adapt to climate or weather-related risks? What we do on our farm is um, we, right now, we mulch quite heavily with a certified organic straw on top of uh, on top of our garlic field, and we do that primarily to um, uh, for two reasons: to help water to to retain water once we irrigate, and secondly to um, to help with weed suppression. But it primarily is to maintain a moisture level in the ground, and we keep that straw on our field uh, while the product is in the ground. Do you have any policy or program ideas for our governments to consider to help alleviate the uncertainty farmers face related to extreme weather and climate events? It would be really difficult to say. I do know that at Farmer's Starter, we were uh, quite quick to register our well um, with the provincial government. There's The provincial government, I think, has probably received some um, some blowback on that. <laughs> farmers are kind of naturally resistant to change and they're certainly uh, suspicious of any sort of government intervention when it comes to what they see is, is their right to use a natural resource. However, on our farm, um, we do understand, especially when you take a look at our neighbors in the South in California, we understand that water management and, and even to a certain point, the calibration of water is, is vital. And so we have registered our well and we um, are very careful about the amount of water we use. We do a lot of hand watering so that only the things that, that are for consumption or the only the things that we use gets watered. We try and eliminate a broadcast water. Morris, if you feel good about that, so do I. That was, that was exactly what I was looking for. Awesome, friend. I like it very much. All good. All right, that's all for now. Before I say goodbye, I want to acknowledge the support of the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for the production of this episode, and to tell you that all the music we use in this podcast is courtesy of jazz flutist Matt Eckel. Thanks, Matt. All right, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>